Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. If you were not here last Sunday, today is part two of a three-part sermon on understanding the freedom that we have in Christ. More on that in just a moment. For now, we're going to read Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 15, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 1. Paul writes, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who would unsettle, who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, we come now and we commit our time to you. We ask that you will be with us. Spirit, I ask that you would... Fill me and speak through me. My words mean nothing, but your word is powerful. Pray that you would be active in the hearts of every person in here to understand and appreciate the freedom that we have in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, as I said a moment ago, we are picking off uh, where we left off last Sunday here in this study of what Paul is talking about when he's talking about this issue of freedom. And if you were not here for that message, let me encourage you to go to our website and listen to it because it will give you a lot more information than what I will give you today. All I'm going to do is just give you a very brief recap so we can pick up exactly where we left off last time. Last week, what we did was we saw that throughout Galatians, Paul has been arguing that the Old Testament law, as we know it and understand it, as the Jews knew it and understand it, is done. And even though we've been thinking about that in a specific relationship to how that applies to salvation, in other words, how someone can be made right with God, uh, we should also be thinking about it from the perspective of our view of sanctification, how people go about living rightly before God. Because in the Jewish mind of Paul's day, and probably today as well, there was no separation of those two ideas. You can't be 
justified by the law, but then please God some other means, any more than you can please God by some other means without first being uh, acceptable to him in the law. And so when Paul says to them then that the law has expired and has been replaced by faith in Christ and life in the Spirit, that does not apply simply to their understanding of salvation, but it also applies to their understanding of sanctification as well. And that's really why chapters 5 and 6 are here. He has addressed the theology of this gospel that he is teaching them and refuting the false gospel that has been proclaimed there in Galatia throughout chapters 3 and 4. But now in chapters 5 and 6, we need to understand what are the outworkings of that theology? How does that play itself out? What do they need to do, etc.? And if there was a single question that I think really encapsulated what may have been going through the minds of Paul's original readers as they were processing all that he's been saying up to this point, I think that question would be, okay, Paul, so how do we live now? Like right now, if the law is no longer in effect, if it's faith and spirit and all these things, what exactly are we supposed to be doing now? And the answer to that question is the single word freedom. And so last Sunday, we just started trying to understand what does this word freedom mean? You know, as Paul uses it, it's a loaded term. It's, he's got a context of his own understanding that he's bringing to this passage and to the, the letter to the Galatians as a whole. So, so what exactly does Paul mean when he, when he talks about freedom, freedom? And rather than doing the work myself, I told you that I'm just going to piggyback off of a very excellent study on the issue of freedom throughout all of Paul's letters done by Scott McKnight. He's taken all of that material, uh, everything that's even closely associated with it, and sort of boiled it down to six main components or six main ideas that will help us understand what freedom in Paul's theology means. And those six points that he came up with are my main points over these three messages that we were looking at. So anything, like I said last week, that sounds smart and godly is his, anything else is mine. Uh, so we looked at the first two of those categories last Sunday. First, we saw that being free is tied to having a relationship with God. Remember that before uh, Jesus, we were under a curse our status was we were sinners and we were uh, rebels and strangers to God. But then Christ came and he resolved all of that. He took our curse on himself. He paid the penalty for our sins. And it is now through him that we can be adopted as free sons of God. And so our relationship with God, we saw last Sunday, has been radically altered. And this is the first main component of what freedom means to Paul. Second, and obviously related to that, was uh, the fact that being free is the result of the death of Christ. And I said it last week, I'll say it again today. This one, even though we treat it independently for point number two, it's interwoven across all of them because all of them are, are true because Jesus died in our place. So even though we gave it special focus, you'll keep hearing it over and over again. But what we did last Sunday was we just focused in on that opening a comment that Paul made in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, where he said to the Galatians that Christ has come, he has uh, given himself for our sins in order to deliver us, free us from this present evil age. And the reason I wanted us to understand that was, and it was really just the gospel just elaborated on, was that we need to remember that when we talk about our sins and we talk about the death of Jesus, God is not walking into this relationship and into this understanding blind who we truly are. He is the omniscient, all-wise, all-sovereign God of creation. He knew everything before the foundation of time. He knew every sin we would ever commit. He knew everything we would ever do. And yet, what do we see in the gospel? That he loved us still, right? that he chose us still, that he, of his own purpose and his own grace, called us to be his own and sent his son to die for our sins anyway. And that wasn't just to save us from some future problem, i.e. hell. 
It was also to save us from our present problem, this present evil age. As, or if I could reuse a line from last Sunday, the salvation we have in Christ is not just pie-in-the-sky future salvation. And I'm not trying to be disparaging of that comment. I'm trying to draw a point here. It's also boots-on-the-ground current salvation. It's both. And you can't forget that. You can't just think about it salvation as being the future. No, salvation is also today. We're supposed to be free. And so we're not just waiting for that future moment. We are free now. That was where we ended last week. We're free now. We may not always live in that freedom. Uh, we may not always feel that freedom. We may not always believe that freedom. We may not always see it. But it is no less true whether any of those other things are true. If we are hidden in Christ through faith, then we are free. We're free. And so this is what we've seen so far, that being free is tied to having a relationship with God. Being free is a result of the death of Christ. And now number three, being free is defined as life in the Spirit. Being free is defined as life in the Spirit. Now, before looking at a passage or two to kind of drive this home and also to tie into our observance of the Lord's table together, let me ask you a little hypothetical question. Let's say that God Almighty were to appear to you in the night. And he says to you, hey, look, you've got an option. I'm going to give you one of two choices. Pick either one you want. It's totally your call. Option one is that Jesus can come and be visibly physically present with you at all times, 24-7, from now until the day you die. You can see him, you can talk to him, you can ask him questions, you can ask him to guide you. I mean, it's, it's, he's going to be there. He's going to be in your house, he's going to be at your workplace, he's going to be with you 24-7, visibly, physically there. Or you can have the Holy Spirit live within you. These are your two options. Which would you choose? Don't answer out loud. Um. You know, this is a, a tough one, I think. You know, would we rather have Jesus visibly, physically, right there? I mean, sit down on the couch and, and ask him questions and talk to him. Or, or would I rather have it, the invisible spirit of God within me? Well, I'll tell you my answer since you can't tell me yours. Um, and it's probably sad to say I would choose Jesus. You know, if I'm in that scenario and those are my two options, uh, I, would, I would take having Christ with me 24-7. And the reason for that probably has to do more with my own lack of faith than anything else because I think, if I'm being honest, I would rather have a Jesus that I can see with my, my own two physical eyes than a spirit that I can't see. I would rather have a Jesus whose words I could hear with my physical ears than a spirit whose words I can't hear that way. I, that would be my, my first uh, motivation, I guess. And so imagine then how convicted these words of Jesus to his disciples from John chapter 16 are to me. He said, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, if you're not aware of this, the helper he refers to here in this passage is the Holy Spirit, okay, the very other person in my little hypothetical scenario. And what Jesus is saying is that if we were given the choice of having him visibly, physically present with us at all times, or of having the Spirit with us, it would be better to choose the Spirit. It would be to our advantage that we do that. 
This is Jesus' comment about it. Like, it'd be, it's better for you, you, my disciples, you, my church, that I go away. Because if I don't go away, if, if I stay here with you, then the Spirit, Spirit won't come. And I don't, don't take that in any kind of weird thought. Just take it in the context of what Jesus is saying here. Uh, the, the point I'm emphasizing is just how important Christ himself saw the role of the Spirit as being in our lives. It's so important that he thinks it's better that he goes away so that the Spirit can come. And while I'll reserve any other or further comments about the Spirit's role in our lives for when we get to verse 16, just recognize for our specific focus this morning that one of the truths we see about the Spirit in Paul's writings is that it is through the Spirit, through the Spirit, that we find freedom. Now, the rest of our time we're going to spend in 2 Corinthians 3. You don't need to turn there because I have it behind me. But in 2 Corinthians 3 now, Paul begins to address with the Corinthians uh, some of the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant uh, as God has presented them to humanity, all right? The Old Covenant, of course, is the Old Testament law, the Torah, and the New Covenant is what we find in Christ. And so, for example, in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 3, Paul refers to the Old Covenant as being a covenant of letter. He calls this a covenant of letter. In other words, words, commands, code, this kind of thing, whereas the new covenant that God has given us is a covenant of spirit. So I've got letter on this side, spirit on that side. He goes on to say that the letter then kills. He calls it a ministry of death. And he calls it a ministry of condemnation, whereas the new covenant, the covenant of the spirit, gives life. And is therefore a covenant, or excuse me, a ministry of life and a ministry of righteousness. He says that the old covenant, the covenant of letter, it did have glory. Now that glory was temporary, verse 11. It wasn't meant to be a permanent glory, but it did have glory, so much glory, that when uh, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law from God, he comes back down and what's going on with his face? You remember his face is glowing. It's shining because of the glory of God that he has been in the presence of us. He's been receiving the law. It is so bright, he has to put a veil over his face so that the people can look at him. So this old covenant had glory, but hey, compared to the covenant of spirit, which is permanent, that old covenant, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, has no, no glory at all. In fact, he says at point blank in verse 10, it now has no glory because of the glory that has surpassed it. Now, why am I reminding us of these things? Well, it... It sounds a lot like what we're seeing in Galatians, does it not? There's a lot of similarities as he's comparing the old covenant and the new and why the new is so much better than the old. There's a lot of overlap in terms of focus and content here. But now let's see where he takes this. We're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, since then, we have such a hope, a hope in this new covenant, the covenant of the Spirit. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, wherever Moses is preached, whenever Moses is, uh, is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, 
who is the Spirit. Now let's go back to verse 17. It says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, that's where there's freedom. Well, freedom from what? Well, I would assume, just based on the context of, of 2 Corinthians 3, that it's from the freedom uh, it's freedom from the things that Paul had just listed above that. For example, number one, it was freedom from death. Because clearly when he called the, the old covenant, the covenant of letter, a ministry of death, he's not talking about physical death. It wasn't like everyone who followed the Old Testament law instantly dropped dead. Okay, So it's not, it's not physical death. It's clearly spiritual death. He's talking about the spiritual death that is ours because of sin. Sin gets its power from the law. And so if you're under the law, you're entrapped by sin. And so he's talking about hell and eternal separation from God that all comes as a result of sin. This is why that, that covenant is a, is a covenant of a ministry of death. Number two, from condemnation. We were condemned because we were guilty. And we lived in that guilt, did we not? We lived in that guilt and that fear and that shame, everything that came with it. That was just the, the, the life we live. We were guilty before God for sinning against him. And so we have like eternal guilt. But we also have temporal guilt too, as we sin and we're doing this, we're doing that, and we're feeling the weight of that and the fear and the shame that comes with sin. And so this is what we lived in. And number three, from pursuing, we're free from pursuing a good but passing glory that came from following the written law. Because even though it wasn't the purpose of the law, sinful men took the letter, took the law, and turned it into the means by which they thought they could be accepted by God and then live acceptably before God. It wasn't its purpose, but that's what men did with that. And if we could just keep the letter, if we could just do what God says in the law, then we're good. We could be accepted by God and live acceptably before him. And Paul is arguing here in 2 Corinthians 3 that life in the new covenant, life in the spirit specifically, since that's what he's focused on throughout that passage, sets us free from the law and all those things that came with it. First, he says, it is through the spirit that we find life. And I'm talking about true, eternal, and spiritual life, sin only has power, folks, over those who are under the law. That's what we're told in the New Testament. Sin only has power over those who are under the law. Well, Paul writes in Romans 8 that the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So because Christ died and we in faith have died with him, guess what? We then are free from the law, free from that ministry of death, and we can now have true spiritual and eternal life by faith in Christ through the spirit. Second, he's, I would say it's through the Spirit that we have confidence of forgiveness and a boldness before God. No more guilt. Let those three words sink into your heart for just a minute. No more guilt. No more shame. No more fear. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I would argue that is not just talking about future condemnation, condemnation from hell kind of thing. I'm talking about like current condemnation, condemnation right now. You know, the, the, the more I study scripture, the less I see a place for guilt, fear, and shame in the Christian life. You say, well, Stacy, man, I sinned this week. You don't, you don't have any clue what I did. Well, you're right. I certainly don't. Um, but should you feel guilty about it? Should you feel guilty, guilt about your, your sin? Uh, should you feel fear and shame about it? Well, I'm going to answer this question as Stacy the person, your friend, not necessarily as Stacy the pastor with the official 
cornerstone stamped uh, answer to, to all your questions here. Um, if I could answer it just personally, what should you feel about your sin? I'd give you three things. I'd say, one, you should feel regret. I think regret and remorse is a right response on the part of the Christian because there should never be a point where a believer thinks back on their sin and goes, man, I'm glad I did that. I'm really happy that I made that call. You, you should look back on your sin and be like, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I had, had made another choice. If I could go back in time, I would tell myself to do something different. You, it's right, I think, for you to feel regret and remorse over sin. I think, secondly, you should also hate your sin. And I mean hate it. I think what makes a Christian different than a non-Christian, at least one aspect, is that the Christian at least understands that they both love and hate their sin at the same time. I mean, this is what Paul describes in Romans 7, right? He, the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. The things that he doesn't want to do. In fact, he says that the things I hate, I just keep doing them. The unbeliever just loves their sin. There's, no, there's none of this. They just love it. For the Christian, we love and hate it at the same time, and so you should feel a sense of hate for your sin. And then number three, I think you should be constantly repenting over your sin. In other words, you should be turning away from it. Ideally, that would happen in advance as you begin to be tempted by sin. You think, yeah, I shouldn't go this way. I need to turn now. But at least after the fact, you should be turning. At least after the fact, as you look back on your sin, you should be going, yeah, I... I can't do that. I need to make changes here. I need to turn this way. And remember that repentance is not simply turning from sin. It is also actively turning towards God. So what are you now pursuing? What are you pursuing in turn? Who are you pursuing in order to fight sin in your life? So regret over sin, hatred of sin, continual repentance from sin. These all make sense to me biblically and practically for how a believer should respond to their sin but as I look at everything I see before me in the New Testament, I can't find any justification for guilt, fear, and shame over sin. You say, I'm a sinner. I know it. I am too. I always have been a sinner. I always will be a sinner. But I would remind you again of what we looked at last Sunday, that God knew that. He knew that about us. He knew everything we would do. He knew every sin we would commit. And he loved us still. And he paid for all of it, past, present, and future. It's all gone so that you could be completely freed from guilt, completely freed from fear, and completely freed from shame, past, present, and future. That's why Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation, none. None. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death that brought us that condemnation in the first place. If the law is gone, and if the one who wrote the law has freed us, what are you feeling guilty for now? Regret your sin, hate it, and turn from it. But Jesus took all the guilt understand that. Finally, it's in the Spirit then that we find true glory, true glory. Because our glory then is no longer in ourselves and in our ability to please God through keeping the letter of the law. In other words, there's no more self-righteousness in the gospel, none. 
No, no more self-righteousness. And I, I've said this previously. I think we all get that when it comes to salvation. If I'm talking about how you are made right with God, I highly doubt there are very many people, if any in this room, who'd be like, well, we're made right with God because we're so awesome. Because God looks at me and says, yeah, he's a great guy. I definitely want him on my team, right? I don't think most of the believers that I at least know would ever say such a thing. But, but please listen to this. Please listen to this. This is also true of sanctification as well. This is true of sanctification as well. No matter how hard you try, you will never be able to live righteously before God on your own. You say, but, but Stacey, aren't we? Yeah. But, but, but shouldn't I? Oh, you should. I get that there's, there's some more to this one than what I'm saying at the moment. There are responsibilities, things we're going to do in this process. We'll get to that eventually. But right now, just understand a basic concept, a basic truth that sanctification is just as much by grace through faith in Christ as salvation is. If you can't save yourself on your own, you sure can't sanctify yourself on your own either. It is not possible. As I said in my introduction, the law has expired and has been replaced now by faith in Christ and life in the Spirit. Those two things, faith and spirit, now define how the believer is supposed to live before God and grow in sanctification. Faith, spirit, faith, spirit. And so what did Paul say in Galatians 2.20? Just by way of an example, he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I who live, right? It's now Christ who lives in me. Which means then that the life I now live in the flesh, okay, this, this body, everyday life, I live it at Meckley Court, I live it here at Cornerstone Bible Church, I live it at Walmart and Target and everywhere. The life I'm now living in the flesh, I live by what? Who can fill in the blank? Faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, which means then that the life of faith and life in the Spirit are the life that sees Jesus living out his life through us. That was kind of a mouthful, which we'll come back to at a future point. It's a life that lives daily in our union with Christ, fully dependent on him for everything. And this is why that's all we're going to focus on today, because what a, what a better physical, tangible reminder of that truth, the fact that we are we are connected to Jesus through and through, start to finish, from the moment we first place our faith in him until the moment we see him face to face. What better reminder is there than the Lord's table? Our life is hidden in Christ, right? We are one with him by faith, and if we are in him through faith, then his spirit dwells within us. He, in other words, is living his life out through us, and this table reminds us of these things. The bread, I would say, reminds us that Jesus offered up his body as a sacrifice for our sins. He took our curse. He took our status as sinners. He knew full well who we were, what we would be, all that we would do. And yet here the eternal son of God came in bodily form to be mistreated and executed for our sins, dying on the tree to make us one with himself. The cup also then reminds us that his blood was the price paid to make it so that we could be in him and his spirit in us. It reminds us that we are forever incapable and unable, unable of having a right relationship with God apart from Jesus. If, if we don't have Christ either in salvation or sanctification, 
we have nothing at all. And Jesus then gave us this act as a continual picture and reminder of this gospel until he returns. And so this morning, I want you to eat and drink in a worthy manner. And you say, what does that mean? Because most of the time, as I have pointed out in the past, when, when churches say that we should eat and drink in a worthy manner, what they really mean is that you should do the Protestant version of penance, you know, confess your sins, make yourself right before God so you can do this little... Don't you understand? You can never be worthy. That's the whole point of the table. <laughs> you're never worthy. Yet you're invited still. So this is not about, hey, quickly bow your head and confess your sins so you don't leave anything out so you can do this and you don't get struck dead. That's not what it means to eat and drink in a worthy manner. So, okay, what do you mean then? Here you go. I wrote down a few thoughts. Uh, eat and drink then as the free people that you truly are in Christ. Remember your freedom this morning. Embrace it and eat and drink as free people in Jesus. Uh, here's another one. Eat and drink as those who no longer have to deal with sin, guilt, shame, fear, and self-righteousness because Jesus Christ has come and taken care of all of that for us. Eat and drink in faith knowing that you are completely dependent on Christ and his spirit for both your eternal and temporal life. And then finally, eat and drink in thanksgiving for all that God has done for you in Christ and by his spirit. You should rejoice. When you eat and drink, you should rejoice knowing all that Christ has done for you. And so with that said, men, would you please come forward? Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.